Welcome to the Gottesdienst crowd, where we foster confessional integrity, liturgical preservation, and preaching that doesn't stink. We believe that the historic liturgy of the divine service is more than mere cobwebs of antiquity, but it is a true treasure of the Church to be dusted off and brought down from her attic to be enjoyed. So let's get dusting. Welcome back to the Godestine's Crowd. This is Jason Broughton. Today we have back with us Dave Peterson. Welcome back, Dave. Thank you. Good to be back. So we're looking at the gospel reading for the second Sunday after the Epiphany. It comes from John chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. I'll read that in the English Standard Version. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding twenty or thirty gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim, and he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. All right, so uh, context. Uh, do you have anything on it was the third day? Like so often. Yeah, I mean. Yeah, go right. ahead. No, I mean, I think uh, it's the third day since the calling of the disciples, Andrew, Peter, Philip, and Nathaniel, and the last word of verse one is Jesus saying, uh, truly, I say to you, hereafter, you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the son of man. So that's the last thing. They're promised that they're going to see this. And then, then this account in, yeah, I think that, so I think, of course, I'm, I'm really into this whole allegory stuff now, as you know, our listeners are probably sick of it, but here I was noticed for the first time that this account actually requires an allegorical reading because of a, of a couple of things. First of all, yeah, that on the third day is an indicator of something, right? And it's just tying it to the, the I mean, it's tying it obviously to the resurrection, but it's indicating by plotting it that way and timing it that way that this is that there's more going on here than simply Jesus exercising a bit of his power to help out some friends in need, mm-hmm. right? But the but so so I think that's a clue that that uh, tells us something more significant or something beyond the surface is happening here. And the other thing is that there's some details here I never noticed, and I this is all my own work. I have to so if somebody's already noticed this or I'm wrong about it, then I'm. I'm welcome to correction, but nobody is named in this except Jesus himself. So Mary pointedly is just the mother of Jesus, right? The bridegroom, the bride, the master of the feast, even the disciples. In verses 1 to 11, no names, only positions, except for Jesus. He Mm -hmm. gets his name. Um, And then you have this, I, I think it's weird that 
it ends so abruptly with the master of the feast's accusation, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, so the last thing Jesus says is, you know, take some of this to the master of the feast, and then they take it, and then he calls the bridegroom, the bridegroom doesn't talk, and then he says this to the bridegroom, every man at the beginning sets out the good wine, right? And then boom, that's the end of the story. And the only thing we're told is this beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. And what did they? What does that mean that they believed in him? Mm. Uh, it doesn't mean simply that they believe that he has that he has power. It means that they believe that he will give his life for them. Yeah. And so I think that's that's where it, this the 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 turning of water into wine causes them to believe that Jesus will give his life for them, and that requires us then to to recognize that Jesus isn't just exercising power arbitrarily, but this is actually catechetical. And therefore we have, I think we have to, we have to interpret this in, you know, I know some people really hate the word allegorical. That's why I use it all the time. But, you know, I mean, seriously, I mean, if you just want to say whatever, there's figurative or there's spiritual meaning or there's theological lessons being taught here. I mean, okay. That is what the word allegory means, even though that that word is sort of uh, provocative amongst us. All right. So so I think right off the bat, anyway, with that third day. So you said that they believe in him, namely that he's going to give his life for them. Um, Yes. uh, What leads you to believe that he's going to give his life? I've I've always kind of looked at this as Jesus is the promised bridegroom from like Isaiah and Ezekiel. And then you know we get that later in John chapter two and three when you have uh, John chapter two when John the Baptist says, you know, I was there at his baptism and I'm just the best man making way for the bridegroom. And then you get uh, in John chapter four Jesus with the woman at the well saying, yeah, you have no, you know. It's right that you have no husband. In fact, you have five husbands. Um, like he's the one who's coming to be this bridegroom, and and he's this is the first, the chief of his signs. Um, do you really think that they at that point were like, oh yeah, he's going to die for us? Yeah, I do because okay. because that's what his that's what his glory is, and I think that the, the the bridegroom language is like the shepherd language or even the king language. Right, uh, that uh, those are all metaphors for for what his glory is, or some sort of aspect of his glory. But the real essence of it is the atonement. Uh, the real es- essence of it, what what his glory is, is his being lifted up. I mean, especially in John, right, being lifted up from the earth to lay down his life as a ransom. And I don't know. I mean, could they articulate it fully? I mean, I don't know. But they, I mean, I they think don't, after they, the fact, that's exactly what is being displayed but did they believe in him that he was going to be this suffering servant to die i guess that's what i'm having struggle uh, i'm struggling to wrap my head around in terms of they believed that he was fulfilling these promises but hadn't put together exactly what that meant i think they well uh, in some ways sure uh, but i would say it would be like like when we baptize a baby you know we baptize this baby. This baby has faith. What is the content of that baby's faith? 
um, you know, it is that Jesus is the one who's laid down his life for him. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that baby can't articulate that fully, but that is the content of the faith. And when it is, when the baby has the intellectual capacity and the language to, you know, more fully comprehend and then be able to repeat back these things, when he hears it, he will immediately recognize it as this is what I've always believed. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? So, right, we, we, children have faith. Their fa- the content of their faith is not different than ours, even though their sophistication isn't the same as ours. Mm-hmm. So, it, I, I think that's where they're at. That they, they, their belief in him is saving faith. It's not just belief that he has power. That's, I mean, Herod believes that. Okay. Well, go. So, I think. Uh, uh, th- but I think so. The other thing then is to go to the whole wine thing. So, and I think this is really great. So, right. So Mary, without name, comes to Jesus. They have no wine. And right off the bat, you know, it's like, why is she coming to him with this? And what does she, what does she want or expect from him in this? I mean, I think uh, to some degree, she just, you know, is embarrassed for them and, you know, wants them to, wants them to have more wine and maybe, you know, in, in a kind of shallowness, actually just wants him to give them wine. But he interprets it in this eschatological way, right? Because he ties the giving of wine to actually his hour. And of course, again, his hour is his crucifixion. Mm-hmm. So this is all really of, this is really the whole wine press thing, right? Mm-hmm. That I tread the wine press alone, the grapes of wrath, you know, all of, all of that great stuff. Um, he will wash his garment in wine and his garments will be stained with the blood of wine. Uh, all the vineyard stuff, you know, the, the parable of the vineyard workers, uh, to be sure, uh, the spies with the pole, you know. I mean, so I think the, the, the giving of wine, the way that he's going to give wine is by being crushed himself and he's going to give his own blood as wine. That's why he's like, hey, it's not time for me to be crucified. Why are you trying to, t- why are you talking to me about being crucified? <laughs> mm-hmm. So, uh, as I was reading this time, you know, I've always taken Jesus' response to his mother as a, a, a rebuke, a, like, you know, a subtle yeah. rebuke. But as I was reading today, I was wondering so, is this also, or, or could we understand it as this line of questioning? to draw out of her more. Like, you know, how we do this in catechism or, sure. or discussion with our children. We'll ask a question uh, that is deliberately meant to get them to think and, and state what, the, what it has to do with her out, the hour. Um, yeah. And she doesn't respond that way. She just says, do whatever he says. <laughs> like... Uh, uh, I, I'm not making connection, but I think there could be, and you know, so <laughs> kind of like the, the the Sunday school kid answering, well, it's the answer is Jesus. Do whatever he says. Yeah. I think it could be both. I think it is kind of a rebuke if, if, you know, that she doesn't know what she's asking or she's asking for sort of material things in a time and a place that's inappropriate or that she's presuming upon her relationship that, that I think it, you know, that it does seem very distancing when he calls her woman. Um, but uh, I think you're right that he is, you know, the rebuke isn't just stop it. I mean, right. the rebuke is educational, right? That, that uh, 
you know, he, he gives the statement, my hour has not yet come. And I think that can mean, well, first of all, I, I think that uh, his hour will be, will be the hour of giving his blood as wine, mm-hmm. um, which is going to happen on the cross. But also, you know, that's, he's demonstrating to her the sorts of things she should be thinking of and asking mm-hmm. and, you know, kind of catechizing her. And I, I think you're exactly right with the whatever he says to you, do it, is I think it's a marvelous statement of faith. Um, it's not a particularly sophisticated faith again, right. but it is pure faith that she's just like, okay, this, you know, something's going on here. Uh, uh, he's talking about his hour. Uh, I'm, you know, I, I don't know, but I believe that he is the Messiah. And so, you know, maybe, maybe he's going to go tell them, go get some poles and let's have me crucified. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that's, but you know, she, she's just like, look, I, it, it, she, she is, she's like, she's like, uh, Abraham going to sacrifice Isaac at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the Lord will provide the boy and I will come back to you, whatever he says, do it. And, and of course, that's very much what you know, the kind of response she has also to the angel Gabriel. How can this be since I do not know a man, right? The Holy Spirit will overshadow you and I am the handmaiden of the Lord. Let it, me, let it be to me according to your word. Mm-hmm. Again, you know, that's a, that's a marvelous statement of faith. And I think here too. So, and, and, I, and asking for further insight, how can this be? Tell me more. Yeah. Yeah. It's great. So, uh, okay. So, uh, so the hour is the crucifixion. Uh, how does the institution of the supper, even though John doesn't record it, how does that fit in to, the, you know, he's going to give his, his blood as wine? I mean, I think you, you have all this Old Testament stuff, again, all of this wine press language uh, from Isaiah 63. It's also in Revelation as well. Mm-hmm. Um, that you know he is actually he treads the wine press alone uh, and is himself crushed in it right so you, you've got this that how is the 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 blood of the sacrifice is not going to be dumped outside the temple um, and the sacrifices in some after the sacrifice is offered to the father once and for all then you know the the priesthood is now going to actually get the stuff of the sacrifice to eat and to drink. And so there is this fulfillment of all of this, which I also think is, you know, there in a ceremonial ritualistic way with the six water pots mm-hmm. that, you know, the six water pots are going to be ruined for rites of purification, but they're, they're replaced in a sense with this new thing. By the way, they, I think they would have had to dump this wine out. You know, so I don't know. I was following along when you were reading in Greek, and it just says two or th- uh, it says that uh, where was it? Yeah, that they're containing two or three measures each, and I that's is translated into English as twenty or thirty gallons. Did you read it? Did you do any reading and commentaries? Does anybody? Somebody must talk about that. Is that an accurate? I'm not sure if it's accurate. I'm sure it's somewhat. It's a Greek measure of liquid volume. So they must have some idea. Anyway, so 20 or 30 gallons, that's, you know, that's, if we go on the extreme end, 30 gallons each times six, that's 900 gallons times five, because there's five gallons of wine per gallon, five bottles of wine per gallon. That's what a fifth is. 750 milliliters Mm -hmm. is a fifth of a gallon, 
right? So 4,500 bottles of wine. I mean, I think that's a warehouse full of wine, right? In fact, I, it's even, that's even, they had to fill all of these. That's a lot of water, you know? Um, these stone jars can't be like, you know, dipped into the lake and then drawn up. I mean, they'd weigh too much, right? So yeah. It's a, a pound of, uh, or a, a gallon of water is eight pounds. I should have figured that out. What's eight times 150? 1,200 pounds? Well, eight of times, eight Wait, times, eight times 20. Oh yeah, eight times 20 or eight, or eight times 30, 240. So 240 pounds. Okay, yeah. it's not quite as bad as I thought, but still, plus the jar itself. So I mean, I mean we could, it's going to take a long deadlift time. that or, or well, squat it. you could maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I'm working on it. I, uh, I, uh, so I just looked it up and, and it just says uh, metretes was about 10 gallons or 35 liters. Oh, there you go. So Two to three would be 20, 30. Yeah, actually, I do leg presses at on a machine, and it's 250. Yeah, see? You could do it. I don't want to do a squat with a bar. I might get hurt. I'm, i got to be careful these days. Yeah, got to get over that. <laughs> Squatting's so much better. Because it works more. Anyway. I do kettlebell. I do kettlebell swings. Oh, there you go. Those are, those are, those are, th- those, uh, I got to be careful, man. I got to be careful. <laughs> I've got hurt before. <laughs> oh yeah, I know. But you heal, and this is what you, this is. I don't heal is. like I used to. <laughs> anyway, yeah. You, okay, so it's not quite the the weight isn't as bad as I thought, but yeah. uh, it's an it's an amazing amount volume, and it would have been just hard to fulfill this. To fill these to the brim would have been a lot of work and would have taken some time. I I don't see how they could have possibly drank all this wine. Uh, I mean, and I I. I almost think they would have they would have just ended up dumping it out on the ground, which mm. I also find. I mean, that's pure speculation, of course, but I, I, I like the idea of it. Um, I like the idea of fulfilling the master of the feast's words that it be wasted, and uh, I also like the symbolism of the way that the blood of Christ, you know, spilled out on the ground outside of Jerusalem and was largely wasted. Mm-hmm. In the sense that you know, it was it it paid for the souls of men who refuse it, and mm-hmm. you know, so why why we to oh how do we get to the sacrament of the altar from there? Yeah, I mean, I think that this is the reason that again I always like to make a big fuss about the thing that the elements of the sacraments, uh, either baptism or holy communion, are not arbitrary. It's not as though Jesus gets to the Lord, you know, gets to Maundy Thursday and he's like, oh yeah, I got to leave him something. What can I do? You know, what, what do we got laying around here? <laughs> you know, I need some kind of thing we can chew and I need something we can drink, you know? <laughs> and if they would have had, you know, if they would have had apricot brandy and, you know, some beef jerky, he would have used that. Uh, no, uh, you know, but actually, in fact, he uses bread and wine because, the, the characteristics, the reality of what bread is, is central to what God gives in the sacrament of the altar. That's why we can't substitute something that seems similar to bread, mm-hmm. you know, as though, well, you know, any kind of thing that we, you know, this, or, and of course that we're not so tempted to do that with bread, but, but we have been in America tempted to do that with wine. Well, we could just use grape juice because that's reminiscent of wine and it's basically the same. No, it's not right. The right. actual, the, 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 what wine is, is central. 
And so, you know, I think the, the connection here to the sacrament of the altar is that connection with the element of what is wine. You know, and of course you have wine makes glad the hearts of men. Uh, you have medicinal properties with wine. Both of those things are in the alcohol of the wine, right? Um, you know, so the antiseptic properties, the, the potential healing properties, you know, the medicinal reality of it, the, the joy that it brings. Wine also, which is the reason Mary's asking for wine, is because when you have wine, now it's a party. Yeah. And, you know, this is what transforms it into a feast. Right. Uh, that's why it's kind of important to have, you know, a glass of wine at Christmas dinner. I don't really care much for wine, but, you know, this is what elevates it. Mm-hmm. We, I've probably told this story on here, but when we added the, the beer taps here at our church, I was against it. Freeze wanted to do it. I mean, I wasn't against it morally. I just thought we had, you know, we could spend money in better ways on other things because we were accustomed to like for elders meetings and stuff. These guys would just bring like a six pack to share. So I thought that's fine. You know, we, we don't need it to spend money for kegerators. Well, Freeze was just bent on it, man. And uh, so I finally, I gave in, you know, he got them and he was completely right because what happened was having the kegs there, you know, it just changes the mood. And what happens is things become, you know, potluck is now a feast Mm -hmm. because there's beer there. It's, it's amazing to me um, how that, the, the goodness that that has done. It's dangerous. I get that. Um, and we have to be responsible. There's, there's liability issues. We got to watch. We've got to all act like adults. Our men's group, uh, actually the whole men's group in Advent abstained from alcohol. And we've spent some time talking about like, uh, we're not going to make jokes about alcohol. We're not going to, we're not going to joke about getting drunk as though that's funny mm-hmm. or, uh, you know, we're, we're going to be, we're going to act like, you know, mature Christian men who use this appropriately, even to the point of talking about some limits, you know, how much is too much, you know, and we don't want to be legalists, but at the same time, you know, we've got to lay down some kind of guidelines mm-hmm. to kind of help. And I'll, I'll tell you, and I'm probably stricter than most. And I'm not, again, I'm not, le- I'm not enforcing this, but I'm, I'm saying two drinks is enough. Yeah. Um, you know, especially if it's a 16 ounce beer of a heavy, I mean, because yeah. really, two 16-ounce beers is three beers. Anyway, almost. Uh, that, that, so all of the so, – so how do we get from, from Jesus uh, or what's the connection between this miracle and the sacrament of the altar? I, I think it's in the fact that the elements that are used and what – using wine for the sacrament of the altar is not arbitrary. It's central to what the sacrament of the altar is. Mm-hmm. Is there any sense in which, you know, th- these are the two elements, water and blood, that come out of his side? Um, yeah. Is there any sense in which it, it, that is key? Uh, on, on top of the bridegroom stuff, on top of everything you've said, this is pointing to the hour. Now we've got water and wine kind of mingled together coming out of the side. But, I, I mean, where's the side here? I know. And, and the water is like, is replaced, you know, there's no water right. left. Um, well, cause it so wanted to become know. wine. Right. I know. <laughs> <laughs> of course it did. The, uh, yeah. Uh, so I don't know how you're going to really get, I mean, you do have, it seems like I read some, st- you know, these are, 
these are jars for hand washing, so mm-hmm. which is not in the Levitical code, you know, but um, so, you know, that sort of some people have tried to make that kind of baptismal, but I don't, I don't think we should. I, I wouldn't. I, well, the, the, I, I mean, the, the material of these jars is in the Levit- Levitical code that you can have water um, in a stone jar and it won't become defiled by a fly landing in it or something like that. Oh, um, I'd have to, uh, I'd have to look where that, where that's at, but it is in Leviticus. Okay. Okay. Um, I didn't know that. So that makes sense. That's why they have stone jars for these, for the purification. Cause then the water will stay pure, even if right. stuff it's, happens to because it. Because the, the terracotta, right. It absorbs stuff. And so the stone doesn't apparently this kind ah, of stone. Gotcha. Okay. Well, I do, you know, I want to make a connection between the, between the stone water pots and the tablets of the law, you know, that, uh, that this is, that this is the completion of the fulfillment of the law. So mm-hmm. I love that filled to the brim. That's such an expressive, right? That there's no room for anything else in this. And, you know, the, that's a, a great thing about filling these with water or with, I guess, any liquid would work. But I don't mm-hmm. know if you remember that like a typical kind of chemistry demonstration in high school chemistry is, you know, the, the teacher's got a beaker, one of those big fat beakers. And he says, uh, he, he puts in like, you know, six rubber balls, like it's like a half gallon container, puts in six rubber balls until, you know, they're over, they're, they're overflowing. And then he says, is it full? And the kids all say, yes. Right. If you've yeah. seen this. And then, and then he puts in, you know, he has smaller balls that'll fit in between and, oh, is it full now? And now they're starting to get suspicious, but ultimately he's going to put sand in there mm-hmm. and they're like, okay, now it's full. And then he pours in water. Right. And, uh, but, so there is this, that, right. The water takes up the full space there. It's, this is, these are fulfilled jars. There's no room for anything else. And they're, they're, you know, I think that maybe I'm wrong on this. I see. I always had understood that by putting wine in them, they would be ruined for purification. You wouldn't be able to put water. You wouldn't be able to put drinking water in them because they would, the stone would retain some of that wine flavor or whatever. Yeah, yeah I. Uh, uh, but maybe not. I mean, if you have a, if you have stainless steel jars, I mean, you could you can you could put wine in it and you could, or even glass, right? And then you can wash it, and you know it, it doesn't maintain it. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know about that. I just know that they do yeah, have do this particular thing that in the Levitic, Levitical code that if you have a stone jar instead of a you know a, a, a normal normal pottery vessel, that uh, the the water does not become defiled um, when something lands in it. So that's why they use these kinds of jars for hand washing. Because something else can land on it, but the water doesn't become defiled. Okay, and I'd have to find that reference sure. in Leviticus. I I don't remember exactly where it's at, and it's not telling me in any of my notes here on the computer. <laughs> well, in any case, they fill them up. Right now, he says, "Draw some out, take it to the master." Then you have this. This is great too. So I always have said that I think the master of the feast is the satanic figure, um, because he despises what Jesus is doing and despises it particularly because it is extravagantly wasteful. Um, you know, you're wasting, you're wasting this on these people who don't deserve it. They can't, they can't appreciate it because their taste buds are numb. Mm-hmm. And 
also there's just too much of it. Why didn't you give it to me? Right. That's kind of the unstated thing, I think. And the I think that's a satanic response to the gospel, to 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 hate it and and to hate it for precisely because of what it is, right? Because mm-hmm. it is so generous. Um, but it's funny, he doesn't know where it came from, but he totally believes that he he knows what it is, right? That he recognizes, and what it is, is of course, wasteful. So, uh, and then he gets the last word. Uh, yeah, he's not, I, I sometimes have heard this, or I, maybe not sometimes, at least once as a, as a teenager, I remember hearing a sermon about this, where the, the preacher thought that the master of the feast was in awe, that he was impressed. You know, every man at the beginning sets out the good wine when the guests uh, have well drunk, then the inferior, but you, you've brought this greatest wine. This is so wonderful. I, I don't think that's it at all. I think it's the opposite of that. I think it's like he's everybody, every idiot in the world knows you don't do it this way. Why would you do it this way? Mm-hmm. Um, and and it's not because it, it's it's not then simply because you're not clever enough to know better. Again, it's because you're you're wasteful, and you know the devil loves accounting, right? And he he doesn't he wants things to be efficient and to be fair, and he doesn't want things to be wasted. Why can't it be uh, Marvel? Just because of the accounting. Yeah, I think. Well, I mean, just I mean, think. I mean, the 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 bride and groom doesn't know where it came from. That this statement. Why? I mean, why would you give? I mean, the guy's got a point. I mean, I wouldn't do this at a party I threw. You know, we don't drink. You know, Maker's Mark for two hours, and then you break out. You know, the uh, what's that? Pop? What's the fate? What's the? I can't remember what it is. Poppies or something? I've oh, never had it. Pappy, yeah. Pappy, Pappy Van Winkle? Is yeah, that the name that's of that? That's it. Pappy yeah. Van Winkle. Right. You don't want to do, you wouldn't do that. I'd be mad at you if you did that. Right? Yeah. Um, I, and that's. No offense, but I wouldn't share it with you. <laughs> no, no threat, right? <laughs> what you'd do is empty the Pappy Van Winkle and pour the Maker's Mark in it. <laughs> No, I, I mean, I think really, if, I, I think that's the sense of it. He, he is, what, what Jesus has done is offensive to common sense. It's offensive to, what, to what's good and what's reasonable. And again, as the gospel, itself, as the love of God is, why do you love these people? They're not worth, that's what Satan, you know, that's what Satan does in the book of Job, right? Mm-hmm. He's to, to the, yeah, look, these people aren't worth it. Job's not worth it. Uh, and uh, I think it's ironic that, Satan's sort of right about Job, but anyway, yeah, I don't think it, it can't be Marvel. It just can't be. You've kept the good wine. From, I mean, maybe Marvel, but but awe, but in a negative sense. Mm-hmm. Also, the master of the feast's responsibility is to be a good steward of the resources. Mm. So it's like Jesus has undermined this because the master of the feast is going to look like an idiot who didn't know any better. Ah. You know, why, you know, he's, he doesn't, he doesn't like the way that's working out. Well, um, yeah, this could be just even the everyman thing, not just the satanic figure, right? Yeah. Jesus makes us all look bad, but then makes us all look good. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you know, there, there is this kind of reckless, extravagant generosity in the father 
that sacrifices the son, right? For a good man, someone might lay down his life, but not for an evil man. Well, mm-hmm. it's one worse. It, it goes one step further, right? I might lay down my life for you, but I'm not going to lay down my life for Osama bin Laden, right? Mm-hmm. But but it's but God is like, well, uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna sacrifice my child for Osama bin Laden. Yeah, you know, so maybe I wouldn't sacrifice my child for a good man. I wouldn't sacrifice my child for you. Maybe I could bring myself and, you know, at the at the sort of height of human capacity to be altruistic that I could die for you. But look, I do not love you enough to to kill a child for you, my own child. And God does that for those who hate him, including those who will never benefit from it. Mm. Why does he have to pay more? Why does he have to pay more than it actually costs, right? Why, why not just pay for the elect? That would be extravagant enough. We'd all, we'd all be thrilled. Mm-hmm. Why, why waste this? Because that's what actually, I mean, of course we know, because that's what the gospel actually is. Right. Is because, because he actually does love the whole world. And, and, and that actually the elect are not better than those who reject Jesus Christ and will not accept his grace. Mm-hmm. So he has to pay for them all because he loves them all. Yeah. So where does, um, in terms of like bridegroom imagery, where does uh, Hosea and Gomer fall in? Oh, I don't know. Just to, do you mean just in the kind of the, again, the sort the of ridiculousness? Yeah. yeah just the, 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 the willingness to take back somebody, right? Who who shouldn't be taken back? And, yeah, the um, lengths to and, which he goes, and yeah, the, the the ridicule that he endures. Yeah, see, this is ridicule. Every man knows better, you idiot. Uh, <laughs> hey, the the Amos cha- the Amos passage. I don't know if I've used Amos in the past, but it is actually an option in LSB, and it is what the field test. The, what do, uh, the Lutheran Missile Project uh, recommends, which is Amos, it's the very last verses of Amos, not chapter 9, 11 to 15. So Amos, you know, is the shepherd prophet, and he's just ripping on everybody, the whole book, <laughs> until the very end. And then you get this incredible eschatological promised land uh, fulfillment language, like the uh, Deuteronomy passage, is that in that Deuteronomy about right? You will uh, no one will no one will live in your house. No one will sow the grain that you or reap the grain that you sowed, right? And in fact, you will, right? You're going to move into move into built houses and built cities and so forth. And you have that you have that in Amos two, but also in Amos nine. That finally, you know, the last verse of this, verses of this, on that day I will raise up the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down, and repair its damages. I will raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. You got a nice tie there, you know, on to back to Christmas Day, you know, on the second Sunday of Epiphany, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does this thing. And the, you know, the Isaiah 63 has that whole. Uh, washing himself in the blood of Edom. Uh, And then behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows seed. So here's the idea of 
you know, you can't, as, as soon as you drop the seed into the ground, it sprouts to full fruit, right? There's no, no time lag, no labor, no weeding, no fertilizing, no watering, no hoping that rains come in a seasonable way. Uh, the, the, the sower's no right there or the reaper. No sweater, uh, no sweat from no the No sweat. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a really beautiful image, especially for laborers, right? For those who are, you know, suffering from that stuff that you, you, you drop the seed and, and, and here we are having a glass of wine <laughs> and then the mountains shall drip with sweet wine and all the hills flow with it. I will bring back the captives of my people, Israel. They shall build the waste cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink wine from them. They shall also make gardens and eat fruit from them. I will plant them in their land and no longer shall they be pulled up from the land I have given them, says the Lord your God. And I think there's a nod there to the, even to the redemption of fruit, you know, from a garden, uh, seems like it's a nod to no longer will there be the tree of knowledge of good and evil will be sealed in bliss like the holy angels and and therefore freed from temptation. Not, so not only freed from the guilt of our sins and the shame of our sins, but also freed from temptation and and everything in the new heavens and the new earth given to us. So so that's a nice that's a nice connection with with this too that again that connection of wine to the eschatological yeah so we have to have we can't have grape juice in heaven. Because right. it has to be a feast, yeah. right? This isn't a you know this isn't kindergarten snacks. Mm -hmm. This is you know that's what grape juice is for. This is this is a feast. Yeah. So, um, did you take a look anything in terms of the fivefold use? I mean, no. I think I most of what you've said you know, comes under like comfort and consolation, um, but could. Could you see it also doctrinally, like here's our beginning lesson in eschatology? Yeah, I, I think there is a, you know, the wine press stuff is, you know, is the man of sorrows, mm -hmm. right? The suffering. Um, so I think, you know, when he says my hour has not yet come, he, he's looking, he's not talking about Easter. I mean, of course he's talking about Easter, but Right, it, that's the the glory of Jesus Christ is primarily in being lifted up from the earth, and His hour is being lifted up from the earth, and you know that the vindication of that and the and the ultimate fulfillment of that is Easter. You know, uh, as He, you know, death is actually conquered, the sacrifice is accepted by the Father, uh, but the we rightly emphasize the cross or the death of Jesus over the resurrection. Uh, sometimes, you know, you'll get this kind of thing. This, this kind of idea that somehow the resurrection is more significant. And of course, if Jesus, our faith would be in vain if Jesus hadn't risen from the dead, mm -hmm. but he has to have something to rise from, right? right. For that phrase to be. And, and so we, we're right to put the emphasis, you know, that the crucifix is our primary symbol and not a butterfly or an Easter lily mm -hmm. is absolutely theologically correct and perfectly in accord with Holy Scripture. I think the the sometimes kind of desire it's sort of like it's sort of like the uh, the kind of thing that uh, where people will complain because we don't give we don't talk about the Holy Spirit enough, oh, and right. it's like this yeah it's like this weird sort of uh, trying to be give equal time to all three persons of the Holy Trinity because they're all equally God. 
Yeah, they're, but they don't. That's not the way the whole the economy of the Holy Trinity doesn't work that way. The Holy Spirit doesn't talk about Himself that much. He bears witness to the Christ. That's what He does, and that's the way that He comes upon us, and so forth. So you know, emphasizing Jesus over the other two persons of the Holy Trinity. That's just biblical. I mean, that's what the Bible does, and that's why we do it. And the reason the Bible does it is because, right, he is the advocate, he is the mediator, and, and the like. And in a similar way, you know, sometimes people are whatever. They're like, you know, we don't, we don't make as big a deal about the ascension as we do, as we do Good Friday. Uh, yeah, right. Of course we don't, <laughs> because the ascension has no meaning apart from Good Friday. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, this is the – so anyway, the hour thing – there's an opportunity, both the word hour and glory are opportunities, to, especially in John's gospel, to talk about, you know, what that is. And again, I, I'm, I'm saying it manifests his glory. That's a manifestation that he will lay down his life or that he will give his life for them. Okay. So, and it, this is this is why this is the first and chief of his signs. Yeah. But you're right about, we did, you did bring up, I mean, it is, it is so key that this does happen at a wedding, of course, also, mm-hmm. right? You know, the Lord set up the solitary into families. Um, you know, uh, we don't want to be too graphic here, but this bride and groom are going to procreate. You know, uh, Jesus loves that. He loves weddings. He loves families. He loves children. And uh, and he loves a party. That You know, all of that is, is so integral to, to who he is and to what he's doing. And, you know, there's got to be a connection uh, to Adam and Eve in that as well, right? Adam and Eve being the first human bride and groom um, and, you know, them being being nearly destroyed, uh, trying to destroy themselves by eating of fruit. I I love this idea that the the fruit in the garden was a grape, you know. That is just so delicious. That's really great. An apple... Yeah, discuss this. I think on the blog, and it is. He did. It is yes, it is really good. Yeah, so it's really worth your. You know, it's it, of course, of course, it's speculative. Uh, it's also speculative to you know say that the animal that was sacrificed to clothe them was a lamb. Right. But I think it's right. Yeah. Um, uh, I mean, I you know I'm not going to be dogmatic about it, but I, I think there, you know, I I love. It's so funny to me that like this complaining about. Uh, speculating, right? Mm-hmm. Like, oh, you know, why are you thinking about that? We don't know. It's not given to us to know. Therefore, it's a big waste of time. No, it isn't a big waste of time because <laughs> what we're doing is we're actually contemplating Holy Scripture. Right. We're actually meditating upon it. We're spending time on it. We're we're reveling in the goodness of it and the details of it. We're not being legalistic and dogmatic about it and saying the fruit was grapes, mm-hmm. you know. And in fact, if you came up with some some idea that it was kiwi fruit or bananas or whatever, we'd, you know, we'd listen to you. And if you made some typological or allegorical, or you made some connection to other parts of scripture, you know, we'd go, Oh, but if, you know, but I mean, to actually spend time doing that is not a waste of time. Right. Um, You know, and I think we've, there's a kind of weird fundamentalism that, that is sort of just the facts and doesn't receive the word of God with joy. Mm-hmm. And doesn't contemplate and meditate upon these things, right? Right. So then, what are you gonna what are you gonna preach on? What direction are you gonna go? I guess I think I'm going on the I'm going for this wine press thing. 
I think there's just so much there. And uh, maybe I'll preach against the Battle Hymn of the Republic. And uh, I do love that music. Mm-hmm. But anyway, yeah. I, I mean, I think there's just that, that wine press language is beautiful. Um, and it's a great setup for pre-Lent, you know, because the next week is trans. This is a short Lent or uh, what are we in Epiphany? Yeah. So uh, all we get is this. Yeah. So um, <clears throat> is this an opportunity to talk about marriage? Um, I mean, it's not often, is it, that it comes up in the lectionary to, uh, f- to discuss and teach about the biblical understanding of marriage? Uh, okay. But I mean, he, what, I mean, other than the fact that it's at a wedding, what yeah. in here is about marriage? Well, one of the texts that is given, or at least in LSB, the, you can replace the Romans reading with Ephesians 5. Oh, okay. Well, then preach on Ephesians 5. Don't preach on John 2. (laughs) (laughs) No, I I mean, I think you can certainly say, and I think you probably should say at some point in this sermon, if you're going to preach on John 2, that Jesus loves weddings because Jesus loves marriage because Jesus loves babies. Mm -hmm. And he's the God of life. And marriage is the means of life by which babies are made and the mm-hmm. earth is filled like these pot water pots were filled. And so, uh, I mean, I think that's, that's all important that, that we recognize. He, he I mean, he, he does orchestrate this. I mean, he, he goes to this wedding and of course you see in John's gospel, Jesus is portrayed, I think more as actually orchestrating events. Whereas Right in in Matthew, you know, it's like he just stumbles upon stuff. Or even in Luke, oh, he's just he's just walking along, and here's a, a widow carrying out her only son, you know. But uh, in John, Jesus is, seems is portrayed as being much more conscious of what he's doing and actually, right, setting things up. Mm-hmm. So he goes to the wedding on purpose. That's where he wants to announce himself to the world. Is in this, and you know, I'm, I, I really. <laughs> The thing is, I think that for the the wedding night party, right? This is this is all in a subtle way a celebration of the joy that they're going to bring children into the world. Mm-hmm. I mean, that in fact, you know, they're going to go consummate this marriage, and we all think that's great. We're not creeped out by it. We're not grossed out by it. We're not embarrassed by it. Mm-hmm. This is what this is what God has has given it for, and again, because God loves life and loves children, and this is why this is worth celebrating. You know, it's not just the, I mean, the the parents of the bride and of the uh, bridegroom are eager for grandchildren, right? Mm-hmm. And the aunts and uncles, and you know, everybody. I mean, this is what <clears throat> what really I, we have this idea that <clears throat> somehow this is the big thing. The big celebration is how much these two people love each other. Yeah. Right. <clears throat> that this is all about their soulmates. This is like when Harry met Sally and they're just perfect for each other and they, they fulfill one another's destinies and right. Right. All this kind of stuff. And, but you know, I've been in, I have children that are adults and that yet, yeah, right. I don't, I don't care about that. I mean, okay, <laughs> great. You know, I want them to be good to one another, but I care about, I, I care a lot more about them being a family and having children and being blessed through children and them making sacrifices for their children. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't care if their children, how they get their children, but, uh, but I do want them to consummate the marriage. Yeah. Is there any 
sense in which, um, you know, Mary didn't get this kind of feast. Um, oh yeah. And, and she's like, like, this is not right. If anyone should have gotten it, we all, we all should have. And don't let this happen to them. Oh, that is great. I never thought about that. That's really good. That's a very, yeah, that she is, she could be bitter yeah. about it. Like if but I didn't instead, get it, she, yeah. who cares about that? Right. But she's like, no, this is not right. Oh, I like that. I like that. I think that's, that's, I think you're right. I think you're spot on. She does. That's, that's an interesting that she does care about them and want them to have a nice party, even though she herself was denied this. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. That's, that's, I've never thought of that. So how would that never play cons- out in terms of his response <laughs> and uh, him demonstrating his glory uh, for that, that, hmm. Well, I, I do think there's part of him, again, he loves, he loves a wedding. He loves a party. He wants this to be a feast. He does want to make glad their hearts. He does want to pour out the Holy Spirit. You got, we didn't talk about, that's another thing, right? With that wine um, brings the Holy mm. Spirit. On Pentecost, they think they're drunk because they have the Holy Spirit. Uh, mm-hmm. the, so you've got all those connections. Um, I also, you know, I also like the idea that, Maybe he wasn't gonna do it, and he actually re- he her, he changes his mind because of her prayer. He wasn't gonna do anything. He knew they didn't have any wine. He didn't care, or mm-hmm. you know, so what? They had enough, and uh, but that she, you know, her, that her intercession makes a difference. Hmm. Um, there's something there's something there too, and her pious response of do whatever he tells you. Mm-hmm. You know, she's willing to accept that he maybe does nothing. He won't tell them anything. Or maybe he'll tell them to start packing up. It's time to go home. These people have had enough to drink. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that that submission to his word and just absolute confidence that he is good. Yeah. That's that's really impressive. And, you know, so commend. It's such a, she's such a model for us to follow uh, in that way. And I like the idea that, I like, uh, you know, the, the fathers will often do this where any anytime there's a conversation with Jesus in the Bible, it's a, in the Gospels, it's a prayer. Oh, so, really? You know, when she's, yeah, and, because, well, of course it is in a yeah. way, right? right. <laughs> and, 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 and that's what we say. Prayer is a conversation. So, you know, if she, she just says they have no wine while well, she's praying. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, and then even when she says, right, whatever he tells you to do, you know, that's said in his hearing, you know. It's a confession of faith, and also still, uh, it, it's a request that he actually do tell them something. Mm-hmm. So, I, I like that. Uh, it, it's interesting to to think of it that way. And I think the reason, part of the reason, it's so interesting is because it helps us realize that our prayers are actually in the presence of God. Because sometimes we pray as though we're just kind of throwing stuff up into the atmosphere and hoping God's listening. Instead of him being right in the room with, I mean, we know better, but that is kind of sometimes, or, you know, we pretend that we're praying, but we're really doing is lecturing the humans that are in the hearing, our hearing, right? We're not actually talking to God. We're talking to them by pretending to talk to God. So you got all those kinds of things. And so when you, when you see an actual, what we recognize as an actual conversation in history, Mary actually said these things to Jesus 
And then you go, oh, that's prayer. And we do the same thing. We have the same kind of access to Jesus that she did. Yeah. Maybe even closer, a closer access in some ways. So is this kind of like, uh, you know, the, the, the lament Psalms where, you know, they kind of complain, but then come back around and give praise? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think this, they have no wine, I think is, it, it is a complaint. I don't know if it's an accusation. Uh, it almost, it could almost be, right? Like it's his fault. They don't have any wine. Uh, and I mean, of course, in some ways it is his fault, right? Um, but uh, it, it, I think it is a complaint, right? And it's an indirect request. She, yeah. she isn't just telling him stuff, you know, the score from the, you know, Rose Bowl yesterday. She, she wants him to do something. Yeah. She doesn't tell him what to do, but I think it's pretty clear. She wants him to give, get some wine for them. Mm-hmm. So, so perhaps maybe like a training in righteousness, righteousness here is, um, it, it's not his fault, but he takes responsibility. Mm. Right. So he, he yeah. takes up a duty as, as the, the bridegroom and then provides the way the bridegroom is meant to be. Uh, is there then an avenue for, discussing, um, you know, the relationship between sympathy and duty or, um, you know, taking responsibility for, for things that are actually not your fault. Yeah. That is one of your favorite things, isn't it? You love that. <laughs> I do love that. What is so much of life? <laughs> no, it's good. It's you're right. I, no, it's right. We, even if it's not our fault, does it, that does, just cause it's not our fault. Doesn't mean we get to abdicate. Uh, we need to respond to the world around us. And mm-hmm. uh, serve our neighbors and so forth. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I thought you were going to, you know, another thing, I suppose, with training in righteousness is you could do something on prayer that, you know, she actually does go to Jesus with her complaint. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, she doesn't go to the master, I mean, as far as we know. She doesn't, she's not, it would make more sense to maybe go to the master of the feast. Hey, yeah. they're running out of wine. Yeah. Um, and uh, she's not you know, a she does. She, she prays. Right. <laughs> She prays and and she, you know, she actually knows that Jesus has the authority and the compassion to do things and she trusts in him. Mm -hmm. And then even when she gets this, you know, kind of harsh word, uh, you know, she submits, she, she moves forward in faith, believing he is good and it will be good for her. So that could be a training in righteousness. Mm -hmm. I mean, we, it does seem like most of the things that we ask God for, he doesn't give in the way that we ask for them. Yeah. Right, you know, mm-hmm. it's, so it's you know, always we're always surprise. asking, yeah, and you know, so so this uh, you know kind of look well, Mary asks for this and gets gets rebuked, and she she's willing to press on, and yeah, again, it's you know it's hard to hard not to tie back to the Magnificat, but you know she the sword will pierce her own soul, or it will pierce her soul, mm-hmm. and you know she she embraces the the suffering that she has to. So uh, going back to his response as a, as a rebuke, is there a a sense? And I think we've kind of touched on it, that his response to his mother is similar to what he does to the Syrophoenician woman, the the Canaanite woman, where it's, you know, it, it seems really harsh, but it's opening up the way. Yeah. He's exercising her faith. Yeah. And, because of course his answers are never 
you know, just like her, her, you know, her statement, they have no wine is not simply information, right? Mm -hmm. It's actually a request that he do something. Um, And in a similar way, right? He never just passes on information either. (laughs) He, he's always, he's always interested in exercising the faith of those he talks to, catechizing them, teaching them, but also, Mm -hmm. right? Calling them and showing them how to live by faith. Yeah. And, you know, and of course, the, I mean, this is why, you know, the Abraham and Isaac thing, because Abraham is the paragon of faith in the Old Testament, particularly because of that incident, right? That's the most kind of extreme example. And I think in the New Testament, Mary is the paragon of faith, who, who I mean, he doesn't praise her faith the way he does the Syrophoenician woman or the centurion's faith. Mm-hmm. But I mean, who in the New Testament exercises or, or demonstrates such faith. Mm-hmm. I mean, she, she's the most exemplary yeah. person in this regard. So, and that, that's not taken anything away from anyone else. I mean, she is the most blessed of women. Yeah. So this is kind of, um, in terms of uh, epiphany, this is revelatory or manifesta- uh, manifestation of the divinity. How? Well, I want see here. It's, He's explicit that it's a manifestation of glory and uh, not of divinity. Yeah, but you don't get glory outside of divinity, do you? I know, but I think it's I think it's an important distinction. I think I think if you say manifestation of divinity, I think that and maybe it's just in my ear, but that that echoes of power. Um, you know, that, that he is God, you know, this is, uh, you know, God in the burning bush or, you know, God on Mount Sinai. Um, and this is, this is the peculiar, um, glory of the one that, again, I know I just keep saying it over and over again, but right. The one who lays down his life as a ransom, the one who is willing to be crucified for those who don't deserve it. And for those who won't benefit from it, that's his glory. Okay. And that that is, of course, I mean, that is his divine character, actually. I mean, in this, we actually see the heart of the Father. So, but I, I don't think we would, yeah, I mean, so if you think about like the divine attributes, right, you know, the, the divine attributes, we, we should have, I'm surprised there isn't one, right? We should have something like, you know, omni, uh, well, I'm trying to think of omni, uh, Amo or something, right? So, uh, uh, so you know, uh, that God is love. So I, I guess when I think of the divine attributes, I think of omnipresent, omnipotent, and omniscient, right? Omnibenevolence, though. Omnibenevolence. I've never heard that. Is that? Yeah, that he is, is that all a, good. Yeah, I, I know. <laughs> right. But that's, uh, I knew what the word meant. I just, I don't think I've ever heard that as an attribute, of, just used as an attribute of God. Is that? A classic attribute of God? Uh, I'm I'm not sure. It could, it could be. You just made it up. Maybe. Well, maybe. It's good. I like it. Omni benevolent. Omni benevolence. Yeah. yeah. I mean, so sure. Uh, this is this is this comes from his divinity because this is who God is. But to, to talk about that as being his divinity, I think for most of our hearers. Well, okay. So here's the, I think we talk about his divinity. It's kind of distancing because his divinity is how he's distinct from us. Yeah. 
Okay. That's that's the name that's the name Yahweh. And that's so but here, right, his his glory, he's still distinct from us because we don't have that glory, but we receive that glory and his glory is how he actually relates to us. Okay. Good. All right, uh, a- any final thoughts anything that we didn't discuss? Nope, I think that was the fullest episode ever. <laughs> It's very good. <laughs> if that's the fullest episode, we've got issues. <laughs> well, thanks for your time, right. Dave. Look forward to Transfiguration next week. All right. <laughs>